This episode is sponsored by Kendo UI. Kendo UI allows you to build better apps faster. They have a comprehensive library ranging from data grids and charts to buttons and sliders. Plus, you can use their components as plain JavaScript as well as in Angular, React, and Vue. They have a large collection of customizable popular themes like Bootstrap and Material. Go check them out at javascriptjabber.com slash kendoui. Hey, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Views on View. This week on our panel, we're all actually live in Park City, Utah. We're at Framework Summit. Uh, we have Eric Hanchett. Hello, hello. I don't have your intros in front of me, so I'm just going to skip them. It's okay. I am Chris on the ViewCore team, and Eric is author of VJS in Action, also educator extraordinaire, has a YouTube channel, which is really good. See, you know these things. Yeah, I'm, I'm a professional. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not eating during a podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Chris, you're... Hello. Who is a view contributor. And developer advocate in my life. Yep. Yep. Among, among many others. Hey, you know who you are pretty good, too. I think I know myself. Yeah, oh, I like good deal. I do. <laughs> yeah, we're, we're here with uh, Benjamin Hong. Ben, do you want to introduce yourself? Yeah, uh, my name is Ben, and I'm one of the lead front-end developers here at Politico and also help to organize Vue meetups. So we, we did a My JavaScript story a couple of weeks ago, and we talked about, you know, your work at Politico and some of the other stuff you had going on, and I was like, we got to get you on the show. Um, one of the things I think is interesting is that Politico is a fairly well-known, well-trafficked website, and it, it kind of demonstrates, at least to me, that Vue is, I guess, ready for prime time. You know, it holds its own just like, React or Angular, but what's it like working on a heavily trafficked, um, well-known site? And what are the things that you're concerned about that maybe somebody like me who's building a hobby site isn't going to care as much about? Sure. Uh, so one of the things that people don't know about is actually with Politico, there's two primary uh, sites. So there's the core site that most people are aware of, which is news. But um, as of right now, that is actually still on a server rendered site. So we're still using JSPs and Java. But what we have, we also have an information as a service product. And so that's what we call our political pro site. And that's what a lot of our um, sort of applications and stuff are being built from the ground up um, using Vue and just sort of rewriting sort of the old JSP ways of doing things. Gotcha. So why did you settle on Vue? So at the time, uh, we were still, the front end team is still, uh, it was in its nascent stages. And so at the time when we were doing product, we were still doing the like, when you click on something, it refreshes the whole page. And so I had joined the team and um, been itching to sort of help revamp this sort of approach with uh, writing web applications. And so at the time, we were at a juncture between React and Vue. And so uh, one of my uh, team members, Chris Gray, who helped me organize uh, VDC, mentioned that he had been looking into Vue. And so we sort of took that and sort of built out different prototypes. And so based on that and um, sort of my experience with uh, both React and Vue, uh, we decided that Vue was better suited for the team. And so from there, I just sort of built prototypes of different applications and have uh, eventually got to the point where we now have a, a team of like 15 people working on Vue applications. Cool. That's great. How, how have you found it uh, working, like having that like relatively large team uh, working on a single application in Vue together? Yeah, it's been pretty interesting trying to scale because um, at one point I was writing everything, so I knew every single file and what, what was going on. Um, I think the biggest thing for us that helped, um, especially when it came to choosing Vue, is um, I would like to say that Vue is the most compassionate framework because it allows people um, to use the technologies they're already familiar with. 
and actually sort of jump right in immediately. And so we have uh, people here on the team who uh, don't know JavaScript, right? That's just not going to be the thing. They're much stronger uh, designers and they can do HTML and CSS, just JavaScript's not their thing. So having them jump into, like, say, a JSX template from React was something that we were never going to be able to get them to ramp up on quickly enough. And so having Vue has allowed us to integrate people of different specialties who at least know enough to come in and actually help move the project forward when it comes to tickets and those sort of things. Mm, so they can actually just write HTML. They can just write CSS or SAS or yep. whatever. And they don't have exactly. to write JavaScript. Exactly. They can just kind of, and then also with the templating language that we have with you, it, it, they just read it. It, just, it makes sense to them, right? They're like, oh, very clearly you're putting the page title here, right? I don't need to, you to explain that to me that you injected it with some render function um, with JSX. So um, it's really helped to facilitate communication and allow people to work in parallel. Did you buy into Vuex too then as well? We did. The first couple apps, I forgot who it was, but someone had said that you try, try not to buy into everything at once. So uh, I just used an event bus for one of the first apps. But when eventually, um, it's like one of the things, you know, you'll need, you know that you'll need Vuex when you, you actually get to that point. And so there was, we had so many events running around on the event bus that uh, just came unwieldy. So for, we are now uh, pretty much fully bought into the Vuex model. <laughs> so did you have to adjust then? Did you have to move from an event bus to Vuex? And what was that like? Uh, it was pretty tough at first. Um, luckily, we've, we we wrote the event bus. We had split it up um, into basic, like sort of module-esque anyways. So it was just a matter of mapping the model so that it was actually a lot cleaner and just easier to track things through the DevTools timeline and those sort of things. So you have like probably UX with modules and also like view router with, with routes. Is that is that true? Yeah, that's true. We actually are using your um, enterprise boilerplate your little uh, sort of namespace module index.js, which help us get them running real quick. <laughs> Great. And I was, I was curious, you know, because every team develops their, their own patterns for the specific app they're working on. So I'm like, if, you, if I looked in your source directory, like what other kinds of folders would I find? So you would find most of the things that uh, you would expect to find from the Vue CLI scaffold. And so I obviously had the good fortune of taking your best practices with, um, with seven workshop secrets for Vue. And so we actually follow a fair number of conventions um, as far as like, we actually keep all our components in a single directory and our tests actually stay in the same directory as well. So we can instantly tell when something's starting, like if things are missing test coverages, or we can also tell that if something's starting to get ballooned to a point where like there are too many components for something, can we genericize something to be refactored or as we're delving into right now, how to create our own component library so that we can now start sharing them across multiple apps instead of the good old copy and paste. Do you find yourself using any patterns that you know, aren't sort of a, a normal view pattern from Vue CLI or from Vue Enterprise Boilerplate? For the most part, we've been able to keep with the recommended practices pretty closely. We've never had to break away from it. So oh, nice. um, yeah, it, it's, been, it's been good. We've been trying to be a little bit more have a little bit more foresight with these sort of things to prevent like clashing with conventions and those sort of things. And have you been working on uh, code coverage and I'm assuming Jest and, and uh, did you go to Cypress too? And yeah, so um, funny enough, I just, uh, at View London, I took Ed Yerberg's uh, testing workshop, which was phenomenal. And uh, so, yeah, so we're starting to actually get a lot better with our code coverage. Um, I think per Ed's workshop, one of the hardest things where we have trouble is balancing like sort of unit tests with the snapshot test and how do we really get proper coverage? Um, because you know it's easy to want to get 100% test coverage, but then we found that there's this sort of lower return on investment because you're spending so much time trying to cover every bit of code that you're not actually catching bug, you're just sort of trying to get that 100% completeness. 
And so once we get a better handle, I think, on our unit snapshot test, then we want to look into more um, sort of end-to-end testing with things like Cypress. So that's something that's still coming for us. Yeah, Ed, Ed uh, I missed the interview with him, but yeah, he's got new test details libraries. Pretty solid. Yeah, it's awesome. I love the people that we want 100% unit tests. We want 100% test coverage. And then you start talking to them after they get, you know, 60%, 70%, 80% done. And it's like, well, how much value is this adding? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> there are some things that, that aren't useful to test. But yeah, like it's, yeah, like one thing that I always like encourage people to test, like whenever we have any kind of regex in the app, like that's a great opportunity to unit test because that's, that's something that can have like a lot of different edge cases, but it's mm-hmm. really test those edge cases with unit mm-hmm. tests. So it's, it's yeah. easy to write those tests and you get a lot of value out of them. So it's like one of the, the best kinds of tests that you can write. Absolutely. I'm a little bit curious as you adopted Vue, what was it like getting buy-in from management? Uh, I've worked with a lot of companies where they started out with a strong back-end system, so Rails or Laravel or you know something like that. And then um, somebody comes to them and says, we can get all these benefits if we use a front-end framework. And they're like, no, what we have works. <laughs> you know, how do you do that? How do you sell them on, we're going to adopt this other technology and really you know, see if we can get some of these benefits? Sure. I think the biggest selling point from my end was the fact that we could really take control of the user experience at a granular level that you couldn't do with server-side loading where you have to refresh the entire page, right? Um, being able to granularly improve the user experience, but more importantly, um, offload the things that the backend developers were clearly not that interested in doing. So like writing proper markup, right? Because we, we had a workflow where we were throwing stuff over the wall. You know, we would write like a template, we would throw, they would convert it, not really catch everything. And then we'd have to, so a lot of times actually wasted in this sort of trade-off process of like, you know, can you get this done properly? And so this was also about allowing people to free them up to work on the problems they actually cared about. And so, you know, for our backend developers, you know, usually they're, they're more worried about like the backend architecture, servers, and those sort of things, as opposed to like our, our desire to control more things like sort of like animations and, and all those loading states and those sort of things, like let us specialize in those things. So it's allowed both teams to work on what they care about and then contribute um, in parallel. And it's been working out pretty great for us. That makes sense. I, I tend to do both on the apps that I work on. And even then, mm-hmm. so I was talking to Chris earlier about a, an app I'm working on to manage some of the podcast processes and stuff. And I told him that I was going to switch a lot of my front end stuff to view. Mm-hmm. And he's like, well, why are you going to do that? And yeah, I, I have a lot more control over the things that I care about on the front end there. And so some of the things you talked about, they're not things that I'm not interested in doing. They're just things that I'm not interested in doing on the back end because they're more pain. Fair point. That's a great way of putting it. Yeah, you don't have to. You don't have to like relearn how to do all the things that you already know how to do in the back end. Right. You can just do those things in the back end still. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and there are some things that are really, really good in the back end, and I need to coordinate some, you know, some information some yeah. of the time. Yeah. But the the front end is the user's experience, and if I can make that easy, and yeah. I can, you know, deduplicate some of the work that I'm doing, that's a win. And in a way, like you get some of the advantages of server side rendering because you you can actually like embed in attributes and inside of slots, the actual data that you need, like from, from the database uh-huh. on the first serve, rather than serving like an empty page and then having to go fetch data. Yeah. Yep. So what are your challenges now with Vue now that you're into this, what, a year, two years, something like that? Yeah, about, about a year and a half now. Um, the biggest challenge for us is absolutely definitely the scale because we used to be a team of five. And as you can see, we've more or less tripled in size and we work with 
um, a lot of contractors um, across the world, so like India. And so we're in completely different time zones, uh, which can make it hard for communication. And so, uh, which is why one of the things we're doing is setting up a component library so that we can just install it um, through um, NPM Enterprise so that it's behind the firewall and how to get everyone to share that. And so we're just at the cusp of figuring out how to get that workflow going with everyone. And so we're looking into things like Storybook to better facilitate communication between like developers and designers as well, because um, we still have yet to really establish a pattern like design system for the company. So um, those are one of the challenges we're dealing with right now. Yeah, that makes sense. In my experience, every person you add doubles the complexity of the company. <laughs> <laughs> happen, right? I would, I would yeah. even say that's conservative. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, I, I feel <laughs> <that> conservative. <laughs> It depends a lot on who you have on your team already and who or, you're bringing in. Or maybe in, you but, just talk to yourself more than I do. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this is the Make Chuck Sound Crazy show. I no, love I'm it. I love it. I'm giving you a hard time. See, I'm seeing Chuck in person, which I don't normally get to hear. <laughs> and so a little bit, uh, I don't know, a little bit more uh, familiar. Let me explain normally. something to you. I have four brothers <laughs> and five sisters. You cannot possibly give me as much crap as they have. Challenge accepted. <laughs> <laughs> okay, we're, we're pivoting. This is no longer yeah. about the <laughs> Yeah, this is the roast. <laughs> this is something the, you yeah. need to know about shock. <laughs> so, so, Ben, you were mentioning you're working on a component library. Are you working on that alongside all the projects that you're currently uh, working on? So, like, is it happening at the same time, or how do you manage that? Yeah, so unfortunately, you know, uh, especially with the news organization, as I'm sure we have a lot of deadlines. And so while I'd love to like take a break and be like, hang on, let's figure out this pattern library first, um, everything is running in parallel. So uh, a lot of it is sort of that squint test of like, hey, I'm pretty sure this other project is going to need this. And so getting ahead of it and just abstracting it. So it, it's occurring in parallel right now. How do you manage like expectations on your team in terms of like what you're working on? Because that's there's a lot, like as a developer, you're like, I can make this better and I want to make this better rather than like, oh, I want to, you have to do this thing where you have to meet the deadline. Like, how do you manage that on the team? I, yeah, I'd be curious specifically within like components and UX. Yeah. I think for me, a lot of it, uh, a lot of my job lately has been about sort of that management with stakeholders about expectations and understanding uh, sort of understanding what the, the real problem they're getting at. So let's just say the, the ideal solution includes some beautiful animation and like all these complicated pieces. Like, if the problem can be solved with the minimum viable scope of just, I don't know, calling it adding an input field on it, and that's really all they need, um, just being able to scope out that work and break it out in a, in a sense that allows that if the developers are, are moving fast enough that they can hit those enhancements they do, but there's not an expectation at the, from the very beginning. They do, those, do the things from beginning to end. And so it's been about a lot of just sort of being able to chunk problems out into the proper solutions and milestones to sort of help manage that, especially because we are, we do have, our team is so big at this point, at least compared to when we started, that um, a lot of times people are waiting around for work. They're not necessarily able to make those decisions because they're not aware of the internal ecosystem going on. So I have to be able to parse it out um, stories in such a way that they can still work on things um, without much uh, context from the stakeholders. So it sounds like part of this is just making sure that components and UX modules don't take on too many responsibilities. Yeah, precisely. Yep. We have like two developers working on, you know, pretty separate problems, but editing, having to edit the same lines and the same files. Uh, normally we've been able to keep them in their own lanes. <laughs> so they so, don't have to rebase yeah. out. <laughs> <laughs> I've been there and I'm just sitting here going, yeah, that was no fun. Yeah. I think I've been there too. Or, or the, or the, the check-in over the top of each other, you know, so you're, 
you're working in the, the development branch. And so I check in my changes and it breaks theirs. So then they go fix their stuff and it breaks mine. And I, I mean, what you're doing with Git is basically like crafting like different timelines. Yeah. You're doing like dimensional travel mm-hmm. and then trying to merge the dimension <laughs> with one individual timeline. <laughs> You know, where, where everything happened all together. <laughs> but you can choose like in which order. Priority. Yeah, right. It's like, it's almost like reorganizing yeah. an entire novel. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, one of the ways we've been trying to deal with that is I actually try to break out the tickets in such a way that you really should be submitting a PR with like one PR within the day or two so that your work doesn't drag on so long that while the rest of the developers are committing and merging, like you've lost track of that. Because, you know, sometimes I'll go where you forget to pull the latest and all of a sudden, you know, so by keeping everyone with a relatively regulated merge flow, um, it's, it's avoided a lot of major, like, rewriting of things um, as a result. So does that mean you use, like, uh, internal docs to, like, help manage the development workflow, you know, tell people, like, what they should be doing for creating a new feature? And Jira? Yeah, so we, we use, like, the Kanban board. Like, most people are on Atlassian, so we're on Jira. So we have, like, a whole ticketing system. And I just make sure to break out the tickets in such a way that can be accomplished within, you know, one to two days at most. Um, and then if there's and then if they're taking longer than that, we can assume that they're either stuck or something's wrong, or we didn't break down the work far enough. Yeah. Um, do, do you have been, to, um, or any rules or policies that help people get unstuck or help like share knowledge, so you don't have knowledge sort of like pooling in one person, where you know that they become the person who works on this part of the code base and no one else touches, touches it or even wants to touch it. <laughs> Uh, yeah, that's been definitely a challenge. Um, one of the things that I've set up actually here is um, an internal project called uh, Politico Academy. And so it's using the ViewPress docs. And so my goal is to get developers contributing to that using markdowns, writing whether it's mini tutorials on the, the things that they're familiar with. And then we also are careful to not let one developer work on a project forever. So whether it's helping letting someone pair with them or swapping them out mid-sprint just to sort of help make sure that people are more or less cross-trained. And to your point, not so fearful of jumping into a code base that they're just like, no, I don't ever want to deal with that. And to be honest, Vue um, set so many conventions for us that that's not as big of a problem since, you know, um, with all the patterns that Vue sets for us, it's not too hard to usually figure out what's going on. It's supposed to like a minified JavaScript file that someone created five years ago when you have to sort of unwind. Makes sense. I'm a little bit curious. Yeah. What's the case for Politico Pro and... How does Vue fit into what it's supposed to be doing? Vue into Political Pro? Yeah. So what is Political Pro? And then, yeah. So basically, yeah. Product description or mission or whatever. Yeah. Political Pro is basically providing like cutting edge information regarding like policies and those sort of things. So we have tools um, such as like Legislative Compass, which allows you to search a bunch of bills and then sort of like, you know, favorite the bills you want or, you know, track your notes, share your notes within the team. And so, or for example, there are people who also need, uh, like the, whatever's going on on the Hill, they need to know immediately. So uh, political pro is generally for like lobbyists or firms. Like you and I would probably never purchase a license because they're usually like, they're, they're quite expensive. Um, and so, yeah, it's for those people who sort of need that information right on the dot um, as up to date as possible. And then filtering large sets of political data and those sort of things. Do you have to create graphs, D3 stuff on there too then? Oh, I am itching to do that. We have not done too much work with graphs. It's a lot of, right now we're aggregating a lot of data, but you know, it's one of those things I would love. The moment I could sink my teeth into that, I will absolutely be jumping on that. And Chris is going to talk about that later at our conference. I will. Animation oh. SVGs. Man, I'm sad I'm missing that. Which will be on YouTube soon. Yeah. Oh, yeah. perfect. Well, then I can still catch it. Yeah, yep. and hopefully it'll be good. 
Ubi. <laughs> it will be awesome. You're doing it right after this podcast, actually. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right after I lose my voice. <laughs> so, yeah. so you were mentioning then that like you make decisions around like how exactly you want to architect certain decisions around political pro and the component library. Does everyone on the team get a say on that? And how do you manage like who like the hierarchy of opinions? Because this like everyone has an opinion on how things should be done. Yeah, absolutely. I actually, I take the more democratic approach. I do like to get people to weigh in on things. And the ones who generally are opinionated on things, usually um, I um, set them off to like do prototypes basically and to prove out the difference between the two. So for example, one of the, the new people who just joined the team is actually really big into type. So um, one of the things we're having to do is incrementally adopt it into the ecosystem because um, you know, some people are sort of resistant against it. So having him show the benefits of it and those sort of things. And so by allowing people to at least show their opinion and sort of at least even if it's not working right now they know that at some point we're looking to it into the future and so that has been helpful as far as managing everyone's um, expectation and making sure that everyone feels like they're contributing to the work that we're doing so yeah i don't make the, all the decisions single-handedly i provide some guidelines but then we make um, a decision as a group usually yeah i like to do the same thing even when i disagree with the final decision mm-hmm. i like to time box it so that you know people have this amount of time to like make an argument and try to convince everyone of you know, what they think should happen. And then for, for some things, like it's a big architectural change. So I like to give a little bit more time for that because we're unlikely to ever change it. But for, for smaller things, I usually make a rule that we can't revisit that until three months on, we can put it on the calendar. <laughs> you know, and people are, are really unhappy about it. But like we give it three months and then we like, we can't argue about it again until then, just accept it. <laughs> yeah, we yeah. argue about it for one day and then we'll do another vote. And if it doesn't change, then we just keep on doing it. And we're not allowed to argue about it again. Yeah, a few years ago, we had members of the Rails core team on, and people would either say that something should work differently than it did, or would you know propose a new feature to the framework and things like that. And what they called it was PDI, please do investigate. And it was essentially that idea. It's go out, fiddle with it, play with it, build a prototype with it, whatever, and then come back and you know let us know what you found. And it's the same kind of thing that we see with like Babel, and um, TypeScript and things like that, where they go and implement things that are proposed to TC39, and then we can actually see them in action. We see this in browsers too. It's, it, it makes a lot of sense because then you have real information. It's not just a knee jerk, oh, well, I heard that that was bad, and so we're not gonna do it. Or that seems weird to me. Yeah. <laughs> For JSX, like, you know, JSX is very useful in a lot of contexts, but mm-hmm. A lot of people, including myself, like when I first saw JSX, I had a knee-jerk reaction where it's like, yeah. that just seems weird and wrong. Right. Separation of concerns. And the reality is... is yeah, that whenever you start saying slogans, you, yeah. you, it's usually a knee-jerk reaction. No, totally. <laughs> yeah. But you look at it and it's like, well, if you define the concern horizontally or vertically, if you can define the concern vertically, then yeah, you're, you're jamming a bunch of stuff together. But if you define it horizontally across a, a feature... You know, something that's yeah. likely to change altogether, which is single responsibility principle, according to Bob Martin. Yeah. Then you're looking at it and going, maybe it's not a terrible idea. Maybe it makes sense. Yeah. Depending it, on how I think about this. Integration of like single yeah. responsibilities rather yeah. than separation mm-hmm. of analogies arbitrarily. Yeah. 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 So on that note, and regarding what you were mentioning, where you said that you want to make sure that every developer at least has like one full request submitted by the day, just so that work doesn't drag on. How do you set standards for what should be universal across your team? Universal. You mean as far as like coding practices or? And like, how do you um, do code comments on pull requests? Like, how do you, like stuff like that? Like for code style? Like code style. 
tabs versus like a number of spaces? Oh. <laughs> yeah, so um, we do. Yeah. <laughs> We, uh, we do use Prettier across the board for the most part. Um, one of the things we're actually trying to implement right now is a pre-commit uh, linting hook um, into it so that people run it. And then that way we don't have to worry about that argument of like, oh, you left the space at the end of the line, um, semicolons, those sort of things. Uh, but more importantly, I think one of, the, I, one of the more different things we're doing, I think, to other teams is we actually have a, a style of commit messages that we try to get people to do where we sort of have them do more micro commits as opposed to like, I made code changes and here's like 60 files that I've changed, right? Like, smaller, being more intentional and making commit messages, explain why they did something as opposed to what they did um, in order to help future developers debug things. And that's, seen, uh, that's been one of my biggest things to get them to write uh, more compassionate um, commit messages that allow the team as a whole to better um, manage the code base going forward. Um, so I think that's one of the, the main things we've been uh, sort of helping to enforce that's probably a little bit more unique. And is there also um, a a decision in terms of whether you want to people to squash their commits so they don't have like so like 50 commits versus five commits especially for one small change uh yeah i mean i personally like having more commit messages especially if they're written in a way that explains what you're doing like i think if you're more purposeful with the code which is what i've been trying to train people to do um you won't end up with a bunch of really random commits that you need to squash it's usually like you know this bug is occurring because of ie 11 like blah 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 and then you want to save that. Like, I don't want that squash. So I, I like personally, I've avoided squashing, you know, merge uh, requests as a whole. Yeah. I think it's, it's good not to, to save the data as Chris always says. Sometimes a squash can be useful. Like if, yeah. if you want to be able to um, like quickly revert that set of changes later. Yeah. Yeah. You know, after, all, after other work has already been done. Yeah. yeah. I find squashing for that reason as well because i i try to commit often yeah so my commits are a work in progress like i think this works i don't know how this works <laughs> <laughs> and i i don't want people to see that because that's still, fair they'll, they'll still see it in they a lot will. of squashes I they'll mean, see it in squashes yeah. but they'll have to dig to look for it yeah, yeah for me it's if i do an npm install and then set up a new package and something you know i i and then I'm working on a, yeah, I might squash those, right? Yeah. Or if I make a, a config change or I have a formatting change that I make or something like that. Yeah. Like if there are some intermediate yeah. steps yeah. where like, the app just doesn't even work. Like you'll never want to. <laughs> right. Right, right. Yeah. Or just the ones like, like the formatting changes, right? There's no real value here other than yeah. readability. So yeah. why would, you know, just roll past it. Yeah, one of the weird things we've been, I've been trying to get them to do though is sometimes what people will write their code and then prettier at the same time and then commit that. And when you're looking at a git diff, that looks terrifying because you're like, what just happened, right? Like, so I try to get them to separate out their prettier formatting, like as a commit from their actual. So then you can see like the two lines of code they changed and not the, you know, it reformatted the whole file kind of thing. Because we have a lot of legacy code. Yeah, and that happens a lot. And that's really nice about like a, a pre-commit uh, linting. Like, yeah. like you're talking about, and, and actually you probably already know this, but in Vue Enterprise Boilerplate, there's <laughs> very robust uh, pre-commit like linting and even like running your unit tests for any files that have changed oh. to make sure that those unit tests still pass. And only I think that's something new. Only, yeah. only the files that are actually staged to commit. Yeah. I think people should do a lot of those things anyway. Yeah. <laughs> but it, I mean, the thing is like, if it's not like the default, yeah. If it's not easy, yeah. it's something that you have to set up. And that's that's yeah. one of the reasons I created things like the Enterprise Boilerplate, so that it can just be like the default and then yeah. you can build on top of that. Yeah, mm -hmm. 
Yeah. And it's really nice because with UCLI, you can also have like a lot of the pre-commit hooks via the, the, when you manually set up your project, you can have it such that there is manual or where it runs like a prettier pre-commit and so on. The album. Yeah. My, my pre-commit hooks are much more, much more thorough. thorough. Like I linked literally everything, uh, like Markdown, CSS, JavaScript, not, not as much HTML just because Right now, I don't have a, a good linter for that, but I, I might pull in, I can't remember the name of it, but whatever Vitor is uh, thinking of pull in, pulling in right now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I, I learned pretty much everything I can. I'd also like to run into a test, which is yeah. also a bit unusual, but extremely useful. It's useful. You know, you right? Yeah, because otherwise, like, how often are people actually, like, running that unit test? Yeah. yeah. You know, not, if it's not built into the process. Yeah. Um, and yeah. sure, if you're doing CI, like on your mm-hmm. like, continuous integration on your pull requests, then you'll find out eventually. But this way, you find out before you even push, yeah. which is great. Then you don't, someone doesn't see that and start giving a review and then tell you it's broken. It's like, I know it's broken. And I, <laughs> well, and usually I'm still pretty close to in the flow if it tells me right away. Yeah. So I can right. slip back in and finish it instead of coming yeah. back the next an hour or two and or even in 10 minutes. You broke it, you know, and even it's like, minutes, yeah, it's your flow. I'm, I'm off into some other problem. And then it's like, wait, 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 wait. Yeah. <laughs> Is your job search stuck? Maybe you're not getting any interviews with employers, or maybe you are, but no job offers. Or you may be new and not even know where to start. This is Charles Maxwood, and I'm releasing a new course and ebook on how to find a job as a software developer. The course walks you through the process of finding the types of companies you want to work for, getting their attention, and putting your best foot forward as the candidate they want. I've coached dozens of developers in looking for jobs and have been able to help several people find jobs within two weeks to two months. So whether you're new to development, can't find a great job that fits what you want, or are looking for remote work from an area without a strong tech community, I can help. Go to getacoderjob.com and sign up today. So you've done a, a couple of different things. Do you want to talk about ViewPress for a minute? Yeah, I'll be talking about ViewPress at Connect Tech and View Toronto. But yeah, but basically, for those out there, it's just like... Um, the static generate, uh, site generator that um, Evan Yu created uh, using Markdown files. And what's particularly cool about it is you can in- integrate view components directly into your Markdown files. It's probably one of the most innovative things about it. So you can do some really cool interactive things. And they've done a great job as far as like uh, anticipating a lot of the different things you might want to use in documentation as far as like whether it's warning blocks, um, you know, already c- uh, coloring your code uh, syntaxes and highlighting specific lines. Um, they've made it really easy to make really pretty documentation. And so they even have like a uh, sort of like a built-in search engine, right? Where they basically scrape all the headings. So you can type in your search bar and it already knows kind of what to look for everything. And that's all built in like automatically out of the box. And so I'll be talking um, essentially at these conferences about like why it's um, not only so amazing, but hopefully will encourage people to document things more because um, at least in my experience, documentation is how software tends to live or die by. Um, and so good documentation, I think, is also one of the reasons why Vue has also gotten so popular is because people, without the need of someone else walking them through it, could just walk through the documentation and really get up and running um, just on their own, which has been fantastic. Yeah, whoever wrote the documentation for Vue did a terrific job. Yeah, there are, there are hundreds of contributors. Uh, <laughs> we as a community have done a great job. <laughs> uh, yeah, a little humility coming through there. You, you spearheaded most of that, didn't you, Chris? Yeah, I think most of the lines in the, in the core docs, mm-hmm. yeah, if you probably get blame me, I'd probably get a blame. <laughs> <laughs> so one thing that I'm curious about, because it sounds like this is something similar to Nuxt, and Eric has a course on Nuxt. If folks are interested, they should go check it out. But 
And he, so he knows way more about it than I do, but what, what's the difference between the two? I would say that ViewPress is primarily for documentation. So it does like Nux has to be like, it's like a true server-side render like you can do like async things. Um, ViewPress has some limitations as far as its ability to do more application-like things as far as like um, managing state and stuff. I don't know, if, uh, Chris, if you can speak to that all, but I, I believe that's one of the big differences. Yeah, it's, it's more specialized. Like it, yeah. It's built specifically for documentation and a lot of people have requested like blogging features and I don't think that should get in the way of like mm -hmm. a documentation. You might want like mm -hmm. docs in a blog for a lot of projects, right. you know, so it, it does align. And I think uh, it is planned to, to add like blogging features later. Um, but yeah, mm -hmm. it, it will still be focused around basically documentation or like building websites for software projects. And, and generating that static site from it. Yep. Yep. Mm -hmm. I think the template that comes with it is just phenomenal. Like, cause it's so easy to turn on things like edit this page in GitHub, right? You just turn it on and just click to automatically generate the link that you just submit your PRs to those things. Um, it's incredible. Yeah. yeah. I like, I also like the, the fact that there is like internationalization and like, mm -hmm. so you can just like have, have it such that if you're creating documentation, because ViewPress is optimized for docs. And so if you want it to do translations, you easily have like the subdomains within mm -hmm. ViewPress without having to do anything additional, which is super sweet. Case your project is super awesome and used by people all over the world. Exactly. Yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly. Yeah, because I think uh, at Framework Summit, we've been talking to different people who have created frameworks or who work on frameworks and internationalization is it's a very hard word to say. Yeah, but it is something that like a lot of uh, frameworks and library authors think about because mm -hmm. it's like, well, you tend to obviously if you're based in North America, you always think like, oh, it's an English speaking audience or Europe, I guess, um, English speaking Europe. But um, yeah, I speak it's American. A, I speak American. <laughs> <laughs> but you, but there's always this idea of like forgetting that there are other people who might want to use your documentation who like don't speak English as their first language. Mm -hmm. So how can you optimize? for that audience. And so like with ViewPress, you almost like, it's not an afterthought because like automatically it's it's there. And so you create like the folders for it and then you have to start thinking about like, okay, I, I'm creating docs. Like I want to translate it so that other mm -hmm. people can understand it. Which like translation is a whole other topic in and of itself, but. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but it does give a structure for people who want to contribute those docs, exactly, right? Yeah. So if they're yeah. fluent in English and they're also, you know, native speaking in some other language, you know, yeah, they can yeah. come in and it's easy to figure out where to put all that stuff. Yeah. yeah. For the common documentation problems, we just try to have like, or ViewPress tries to have like a clear yep. path to decide this is how you handle that. Because yeah. pretty much any of the documentation problems you can think of, like the view ecosystem has had those problems. Yeah. Well, <laughs> we've had that, those problems. Yeah. yeah, so yeah if it's but, already been solved, sure, you gotta, yeah. don't yeah, yeah. solve it again. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And actually, um, no, but that's why we, like, yeah. I think that's why we've been able to build into this because like we're actually yeah. using it for yeah. uh, not yet the the core docs but for the most if not all of the like all the, um, the like companion libraries like yeah. ux view router and uh, all the other smaller ones yeah cool. yeah and a really cool point i mean it's like kind of a, an aside but i think chris mentioned this previously as well like especially when you're creating docs and you're thinking about i18n um it also affects the way that you write the english docs because chris was saying that when he's writing view docs mm. he always has to think about how to explain things as simply as possible without using like complex concepts or computer science terms because mm -hmm. people might not be coming from that background and also it might not translate well. So it's like, I don't know, how do you say like state management system? Yeah, <laughs> or you know, if, if you're talking about like a higher order function, 
yeah. uh, you know, I think it's, it's easier and about as many words to just say a function that returns another function. Mm-hmm. And then once people see that, they think, oh yeah, okay. But they see higher order function, especially in another language where like higher order, like might sound really strange. I know what all those words mean. <laughs> yeah, it's like, I know high and I know order. It's like, are, is this a sorting thing? <laughs> it's like a, it's a priority sort. I don't know what, what's going on here. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. So, so we're running out of time. And I think one thing that we would be remiss if we didn't cover is uh, usage groups. So you, you've organized or co-organized uh, the Vue.js group in Washington, D.C. And one thing that I run into some, especially since I've been talking to people who are trying to find a job, and I'm like, well, go find a users group and get to know people because that will really help you out. They're like, there isn't one here. So if they're kind of getting into it and they're thinking, I'd really like to learn this technology, but I don't know who the technologists are around me. How do they start a users group? Yeah, so I gave a talk about this actually at ViewConf, like a quick lightning talk and turn it into like an organizer handbook. So if you go to viewmeetups.org, um, in the resources section, there's a whole written tutorial as far as like the things I've um, encountered um, organizing the meetup groups that I've had. I think I'm front of about two or three at this point. And so a lot of it is just being willing to be that community leader of just setting up to be like, hey, these are people who are interested in X topic and let's get together and meet. And so I think uh, the hardest thing I think that people don't realize is our that people think is finding the venue. And so, you know, using public spaces, like whether it's live or public libraries or even a lot of office spaces, especially these days are willing to open their, their doors, especially if you're bringing in like tech talent into it to like, you'd be surprised. I think people would be surprised how many people would be willing to host. And so a lot of it is just creating that spark and it's just sort of getting the word out and allowing people to just sort of facilitate discussions around um, the topic that you're interested in and then helping to create like, so for example, we created um, a Vue DC specific Discord group. So, because while there's a Discord channel for the Vue JS land as a whole, um, a lot of there can be there can be a lot of noise in there because you know everyone's sort of vying for attention. So, by creating like a community specific Discord channel for Vue developers, we've been able to target sort of the people that need help, and then they can feel like they have a community actually backing them, um, so that their their questions can actually be addressed. That's something I've been wanting to try to do. In uh, I live in Reno, we have a JavaScript meetup. We have a WordPress meetup. We have like a general developers meetup, but we don't have any view meetups. So I'm thinking, mm-hmm. yeah, I'll try to organize it, but then I'm thinking, I don't know if there's enough people, but <laughs> I'm going to go to your viewmeetups.org and find out how to do that. Yeah, I mean, I would definitely recommend just, just uh, I mean, VDC was one of those things where we were like, hey, there's a React group, there's an Angular group, and we're like, there is no view group. And so it was one of those things that we in five minutes, we're like, let's, let's, so I, I went on meetup.com. It wasn't there. I registered it. And I think things just sort of took off from there. Um, and we're now, I think up to like almost 500, 500 members in the group. Um, I was going to be shocked if we had 10. So it's just one of those things that you just let the internet kind of do its magic. Um, it's pretty incredible. And, and even for non-view meetups, I think what Ben's put together is, mm-hmm. is actually a great resource for just like starting a, a tech meetup or like forming a community locally. Yeah. The other thing is, is that, I mean, DC is a fairly large market, right? There are a lot of people there. And so you're going to get a lot of people who will say, yes, I'm interested in Vue. Reno is a much smaller market, right? Yeah. But even then, in a lot of the smaller markets or some of the niche spaces that I've tried to start meetups in, Mm -hmm. the first few months, yeah, you get 10 people or so there. That's enough to have a good conversation. And then as you can remain consistent and keep it interesting, it'll grow. Yeah. So to me, if I can get even... So like three people outside of myself in the room, I think that's enough to facilitate a conversation. 
And so, yeah, it's one of those things uh, that I think it, once people start it, I think it's it's surprising how many people will actually start to slowly flock to it. Yeah. So, so how do you how do you decide what to talk about at the groups? Uh, so my big thing is I love uh, teaching workshops and sort of helping people to code. So most of my inspiration comes from uh, providing exercises and things for people to code along or to actually get hands-on experience. Um, so actually, currently at BBC, we have two types of events. We have one that's speaker-oriented. So usually that's one for the topics. And because one of the hardest things I've found with meetups groups is that usually once you start a group, the topics get more advanced over time. And then you sort of leave behind the people who just kind of want to get in the door. But they're like, I don't know about this advanced component patterns. I barely know view, right? And so I created a code lab session that was a much geared towards people who are either new or people who just wanted to come in and work on projects and sort of talk through. So currently we have a code lab session and we have like a speaker session that kind of goes on once a month to sort of help facilitate that knowledge growth. Mm -hmm. So I, I help organize the Chicago Vue.js meetup. And mm -hmm. one of the things that um, we struggle with is that we usually have tons of people sign up and like not a lot of people actually <laughs> show up. <laughs> um, something like we're trying to change the messaging around like, um, because I think a lot of people are excited about specific things that we're talking about, but they might mm -hmm. not, similar to what you're saying, like, they might be like, I'm a beginner or I'm new to view and I'm kind of, I want to be a voyeur and I just don't, they might not feel comfortable going to a, to that specific meetup because the topic is too advanced or like there, there's sure. multiple factors that are involved in it. And I've been speaking with like the other organizers at the Chicago meetup and we've been trying to brainstorm ways of how to make sure that the numbers, we can keep our numbers up. Sure. Do you have um, yeah, so basically what I tell people is that uh, meetups, because they are free events, I would, whatever that number you get RSVP, you probably expect about 30% of that to actually show up. Yeah. Um, it's usually like the rule of thumb that I found. And then uh, more importantly, um, if you don't, like, so I know that setting up a whole different meetup was a little bit extreme for some people because it is a lot of time to do these things. Um, I would recommend setting up like a beginner's corner. So letting people know that if you come to this talk and you're new, we're going to have like a Vue.js, you know, developer who's sort of there, like, away from the talk to, like, sit there and talk with you and work with you through tutorials or any questions you have. And so by sort of letting people know that there is a space, a safe space for them um, outside of sort of the experienced people, um, I found that that was pretty helpful to help facilitate bringing more people in. And so, and then you even get the experienced people who actually want to spend time with the, you know, they just want to hear your thoughts and um, bounce ideas off of you. So just creating that sort of, I don't know, call like office hours outside of the speaker group could, could help facilitate that. I think the way that you talk about development also creates the kind of culture that is either going to, you know, make a lot of people feel welcome or make some groups mm -hmm. feel not welcome. Like one of the things you said earlier that uh, really caught my ear, uh, you were talking about writing compassionate commit messages, you know, and, and most people, I hear them talking about writing like, you know, uh, clear messages or, concise. you know, concise or, or something like that. You know, these are, these are sort of abstracted, like, almost like technical like descriptions of what a commit message should be. And what I like about compassionate is it gets right to the point of like why we're writing these commit messages in the first place. Like it's for, it's a communication tool and like the compassionate thing to do is to write messages that will make like your team members lives easier and your future self self's life easier. Mm -hmm. uh, so yeah, I, I think, I think that's really important important and I appreciate that it sounds like you're creating that kind of community at Politico yeah and probably also at your meetups
I want to go back to the idea around new developers too. Um, when I first got into Ruby, I was one of the Ruby users group and they made sure to have a 10 minute primer is what they called it every, every time. And so um, they would basically ask people for whatever topics they either wanted to talk about or wanted to talk about. Right. So I've really been struggling with regular expressions or I've really been struggling with testing or something like that. Right. And it can be anything like that. And then it's, okay, who wants to give a primer on it? And the idea is, is you're going to cover the basics of this topic. And that way, yeah, new people showing up knew that there was going to be some content for them. And then they could kind of stick around for the larger conversation that everybody who's been in it for a while is going to have. And yeah, that's, that's a lot of ways to do that. That's a great idea. Yeah, I think especially like from a meetup organizer perspective, it's always... In a sense, you sometimes want to organize events that you want to go to mm -hmm. or like topics that you want to hear. And so it's always interesting or it's always like this balance you have to make because you might be an advanced view developer, someone who knows a lot about view and you're like, I want to hear about advanced concepts. But that might not be a topic that brings in a lot of people because, mm -hmm. you know, there might be enough people who are new to view who want to learn view who that topic will not resonate with. And then you won't get a lot of attendees. Yeah. And so that's always something like, for example, one of the things that we recently organized was a, a way of getting people to contribute to view, because I think that's something that people feel a little intimidated by. And so it, it's similar to like a, a workshop style, like we're going to have a couple of people who have contributed to view and we'll walk through how exactly to contribute. And we tried to make it really beginner friendly, but I found like people still had a lot of hesitations around like, oh, but I don't feel like I know Vue, so how can I contribute to Vue? And it's like, oh, but at the same time, like this is a cool event. <laughs> and like, <laughs> again, but we're also like, is it worth doing if people like are afraid to do, to, to right. come in the first place? Or, yeah, or how do you, how do you get, how past, do you that? get yeah. past that? Yeah. How do you work past that like initial anxiety? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I have I have some thoughts on that, uh, okay. but uh, it's 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 long, so maybe we okay, should talk yeah. about it later. We yeah, it time. we'll save it for another episode. Yeah, sounds great. I I found that if you want people to show up to your meetups, just have a talk that's entitled "VR AI Based Blockchain <laughs> Built in View." Yeah, exactly. <laughs> But, Seven but, secret patterns. Well, well it's 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 yeah, something around clickbaity like that. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. I, I'm saying, but I did I did a talk for the local Ruby group on basically blockchain and Ruby, and I just built the blockchain, and we probably oh, had three or four times the turnout that we normally get. And Whoa. so there are topics that aren't necessarily applicable to anybody that the people are interested in, and I think sometimes we do have to kind of challenge our how useful is this with what are people interested in or what's kind of yeah. fun that we can yeah. attack that people yeah. are going to want to hear. Yeah. You've got to be like a promoter, be able to get out there. Exactly. There we go. Yeah. Out, get like a catchy kitchen. Yeah, hand out yeah. coupons. Yeah. The one, the, one, <laughs> the one event that I found was really successful was like, I, I pretty much convinced Chris to come to Chicago. <laughs> and Evan happened to be in town for Laracon. He I mean, didn't end up showing up. But I mean, you paid me to come to Chicago. <laughs> I did. I, did. <laughs> I mean, I found money for it but yeah. i was like right. basically, basically just paid travel so. yeah but but that event was like incredibly successful and i i don't know if it was because of evan and chris i don't know about chris maybe evan <laughs> <laughs> but yeah. so it, but, yeah. that event was originally 25 dollars <laughs> yes and, and then and then was. when evan wasn't able to make it drop the price to five no, that's not, that's not. <laughs> i thought that, like that was, that was still very generous <laughs> 
for the record, it was what it was five it was five bucks. Evan said on the day that he couldn't come, he couldn't come. Yeah, and then that's that's when it was dropped from. No, that's not true. <laughs> it's okay, Chris. Is the discount Evan? It's fine. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I, I I am worth certainly no more than like twenty percent. Like <laughs> no, I'm next. Anyway, I want to make sure that we have plenty of time to wrap up before Chris has to go give his talk. So I'm yeah, gonna, I was going to say yeah, but yeah, before we do that, uh, if people want to see what you're working on these days or follow you online, where do they go? Yeah, you can find me at uh, Ben Code Zen. Uh, that's all on Twitter, GitHub. Um, that's where I, I own that domain. So yeah, you can find me at Ben Code Zen. Awesome. All right. Well, let's do some picks. Do you run your own freelance business? Or maybe you're thinking about picking up some business on the side. Well, then you need FreshBooks. FreshBooks is the quickest and easiest way to get invoices out to your clients. It's easy to use. It works anywhere, available from any device, uh, on the desktop, iPhone, iPad, Android, and all of your data is backed up and secure. And it makes it really easy to get organized and get paid. You'll be tracking time, logging expenses, and invoicing your clients in no time. You can also save time billing, freeing up several days per month to focus on the work that you love, and you get paid faster. FreshBooks customers are paid on average five days faster because there's a link on the invoice that says pay me now, and it's a great way to grow your business. Plus, FreshBooks is offering a 30-day trial. That's right, 30-day trial if you try them out. So go to gofreshbooks.com slash devchat and enter devchat in the how did you hear about us section. Once again, for a 30-day trial, go to gofreshbooks.com slash devchat and enter devchat in the how did you hear about us section. Divya, do you have some picks for us? Yeah, I have one pick. Early on Monday, there was the Creator Summit. And I think that was, so that was a conversation between a couple of groups uh, where people just talked about specific topics that resonated from their communities um, or things that they were working on. And I think that was a really cool conversation because that doesn't happen often. Um, and I think the notes will be published. So like, I'm going to pick that wherever the, the link for that will be. <laughs> I don't know how to plug it, but, um, I think it should be available by the time that this gets posted. Yeah. yeah we'll see if we can find those. Yeah. I know a guy I'll bug Joe. Cool. <laughs> Even though he wouldn't let me crash the party. Anyway, <laughs> Chris, do you have some picks for us? Yeah. My first pick is Chuck. Uh, <laughs> I didn't do it. You're probably worried about <laughs> <laughs> no, no, no. But like all, all joking aside, uh, like Chuck is totally professional. And I've learned a lot from him about, uh, you know, podcasting and just like organizing people to do things. And eating um, on podcasts. It's better than eating hungry. I mean, it's better than giving a podcast hungry. And then but you're just like not making any sense. You should see my schedule on Tuesdays. Anyway. Yeah. So I mean, he is really professional. And I've learned a lot from him explicitly and also just like implicitly, like listening to the kinds of questions that he asks and trying to, uh, you know, listen to that and uh, figure out how to ask good questions, have a good interview. Uh, so thank you very much, Chuck, for helping me and a lot of other people learn how to podcast better. I'm audibly blushing. <laughs> Eric, do you have some tricks for us? Yeah. Well, uh, it's okay. That was my first pick. But uh, <laughs> my second pick. Semi-professional, semi-professional. My second pick is uh, uh, Chuck again. Um, I just want to, this is a cautionary tale. You know, if you interrupt people when they're in the middle of something, um, sometimes they might roast you a little bit on the next podcast. (laughs) No, my second pick is like when you're traveling and you're going to conferences and going to events, um, especially when it's over like several days or a week or weeks, uh, 
I strongly recommend taking time to like take a break, like go take a nap when you need to, uh, meditate plus one, make Holy sure God. that you're eating. Uh, yeah. seriously, like I, I feel it too. Like I feel the FOMO of like, Oh, cool things are happening constantly. I don't want to miss anything, but uh, you're just going to burn yourself out and you won't be able to fully engage with the things that you're most excited about. Uh, if you don't, if you don't make sacrifices and, and make sure you're still taking care of yourself and, and really just like taking a, you know, one or two hour nap, or even taking like 10 or 20 minutes to meditate can completely change your entire day. Um, strongly recommend it. Yep. Okay. Now I'm done. You sure? <laughs> I might think of more, but it, you can go, you can go ahead. All right, Eric, what do you think? Yeah, uh, I was, uh, that's a good point about just taking some time, you know, definitely during conferences and there's so many things happening, especially after the conference is over. I'm not mm-hmm. like after the day's up. What do you, should you go to all these different meetups? Sometimes taking a break and figuring out what you want to do is a good idea. Uh, my pick is Stack Blitz. They had a really awesome presentation yesterday here at the Framework Summer. If you don't know what it is, it's a, it's like a code editor, but uh, it has some neat, neat features to it. Uh, I'm not going to explain them all here, but uh, yeah, check that out, Stack Blitz. Yeah, they showed you how to hijack somebody's phone. Yeah, they had a- <laughs> <laughs> All right, I've got- Yeah, I saw that one. Yeah. yeah. I let them hijack my phone. Anyway, I remember. <laughs> I, I've hijacked your phone. <laughs> now I'm worried. <laughs> that's, that's why I'm so mad at you today. I know you've been saying about me. <laughs> <laughs> All right, I'm going to jump in with a couple of picks. So um, I've, I've mentioned that I've been working on this book on finding a developer job. Um, I think I'm actually going to rebrand it because the, the branding around it has mostly been aimed at new programmers. But I wind up talking to a lot of people that are either in a job that they don't like or seem to have not been able to find a job that they're completely happy with. And that's really the focus of the book. And so um, anyway, so I'm probably going to do that, but that that's completely aside from the picks. Uh, so I read a book called the one thing. I don't remember the author and uh, I would look it up on my computer, but we're all talking on it. So yeah, my one thing. So that that's the thing is that I decided that my one thing was this book. Awesome. Right. So I'm just going to buckle down and get it done. I've been trying to split my time between the system that manages the podcasts and the book. And it makes it really hard to try and split my focus between the two, even though I'll focus on one thing one day and one thing the next day. And so I've, I've decided that I'm just going to get the book and the course done. And that way I can put all of my attention into the, the other system. And uh, that's been really, really helpful. And it basically gave me permission to drop a lot of other things that I felt like were important so that I can get the critical stuff done. And then the other pick that I have is um, the system that I've been using to write the book. Um, I bought a course called Self-Publishing School and it's, it's Self-Publishing School with some dashes in it. And I don't remember where all the dashes go. Uh, so Google it, I guess. <laughs> we'll put a link in the show notes. Um, but it's been really helpful. Um, so they, they get you started with outlining the book and then um, basically tell you to write without editing, which is also helpful. And then, um, and then they start talking about editing the book and building a community to help you promote the book. And they go all the way through actually getting it ranked on Amazon. So if you're looking at writing a book and you want to self-publish it, I highly recommend that. It's been really, really helpful. I signed up for the level that gives me all of the courses, access to the community, and I have a coach that I talk to every month. 
And so it's, it's been really helpful just to get that figured out. So um, anyway, I've, I've really been happy with what I've gotten for my money for that. So nice. That if you want to self-publish, if not, you know, there are publishers out there that definitely do a good job and can help you market your book. So there's not a wrong way to go. It's just for me, given the audiences that I have and things, I feel like I can promote it to people that need it, that I actually have the opportunity to talk to. It, it sounds like even if you don't want to self-publish, like there are a lot of resources yeah. for just writing. Yeah, mm-hmm. for just getting it written. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, I know a few people who have self-published and then had a publisher come to them and say, we would like to distribute your book. And so when you're in that position, you have a whole lot more options as far as what you concede or not concede to the publisher. But yeah, there are a lot of ways to do it. I don't think there's a right way to do it, but definitely finding somebody who's done it before and knows what they're doing has been helpful. So nice. Ben, do you have some picks for us? Yeah, uh, I got two. Um, so just before this, um, I watched a TED talk by Elizabeth Gilbert who wrote, he played love on um, your elusive creative genius. Um, and so for those that sort of suffer from whether it's imposter syndrome or having issues sort of being creative and the insecurities that come with that, um, it was a phenomenal talk. It was really inspiring. Um, and the second one I have is obviously uh, view meetups. So again, for those who are looking for either view meetups um, in their area, or frankly, if you want to start your own meetup, um, the advice I have in there is completely generic. It doesn't have to be a view meetup. Um, so if you go to viewmeetups.org, you should find all that stuff there. And so that's it for me. Yeah, I forgot to mention, I have a signed first edition of UJS in action. <laughs> I, I also have like one more pick that, that oh, I have related to UJS in action, uh, very much so. So Yesterday, uh, Eric's been giving out some, some copies of UJS in Action and some others have been available for purchase. Uh, and uh, one of the teams that got a copy of UJS in Action, they were looking it over uh, and they were really digging like a lot of the examples and explanations. And they started like seriously, like legit fighting over who got the book first. <laughs> like for the culture of the team. Like I think they're going to need more copies because everybody wants it. I'm really excited about it. Awesome. That's good. That's good to hear. They're, they're going to keep down their hotel keys so they can get violent over the book. Yeah, or there'll be some downsizing. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> Death match downsizing. I can, yeah. I can imagine that happens. Yeah. Yeah, this isn't something I'm making up. Yeah. Yeah. yeah Divya threw her muscles in the mix. Break it up! <laughs> I may be small, but I pack a punch. That's right. Yeah. She does a lot of climbing, so she's got these like spiky climbing shoes. Climbing shoes are not spiky. (laughs) 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 No, but I thought they had like literal spice to get into the. No, that is. I think we better wrap this one up. We'll we'll catch you on those. (laughs) Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit c a c h e f l y dot com to learn more.